In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Some tech entrepreneurs are fortunate enough to strike gold once. Kelly Rodriguez, today's Money Tales guest, has had the good fortune to strike it multiple times. As Kelly maneuvered from being the CEO of one successful company to the next, it became apparent to him that there's a lot of wealth at the top of startup companies and plenty of room to share it more broadly across the rank and file employees. Kelly now spends time thinking about how to let other people financially share in what he's doing. Hi, this is Sandy. Kelly is currently the CEO of Forge, a company that is catalyzing economic innovation by providing equal access to private market capital products and services. Kelly is proud of what Forge is doing in terms of getting more liquidity in the hands of employees when they need it, rather than forcing the employees to abide by the company's timetable of going public or being bought out. Kelly has more than 26 years of fintech experience and has been an investor in more than 25 venture-backed firms. We invite you to stick around after the interview for my and Cammy's takeaways. Now, onto our conversation with Kelly Rodriguez. Kelly Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining us on Money Tales today. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're really thrilled to have you. Would you start us out by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, primarily a couple pivotal moments that got you to this, this conversation today? I'm from a small town. And I grew up in a family that moved about every 15 months from small town to small town. My dad was a small town politician, and we moved from the central part of the state to the Bay Area and back to L.A. and up to Oregon and back to L.A. again. And so I went to three different high schools and four different elementary schools and a couple middle schools. And so I kind of became a stranger to adapting to different new environments but was always sort of a, an adventurous kid and was an entrepreneur pretty early in my life as a college student in particular. And I set out to be a, a teacher and a coach. That's really was studying education and, and didn't really have a business background at all. And ultimately found my way up to the Bay Area in the tech world. And the rest, as they say, is sort of history. I moved from being a sales and marketing executive to founding companies and this is the fourth CEO gig I've had. So uh, happy, to, happy to be here. You leave a lot of areas for us to drill into. Let's start with where you were as, as a youth, uh, these entrepreneurial spirit. What was, tell us about the family. You know, growing up as a kid of a politician, were you having money conversations with mom and dad? What were you talking about? 
my dad was a really inspirational guy, but I, I must admit, if we were having money conversations, it was usually about money troubles. We were kind of a, I would, I would characterize our family as sort of lower middle class. I was the first member of my family to actually graduate college. My dad attended for some time, but he was a really inspirational guy that pushed me and my, my two brothers into, uh, into sports. And ultimately, part of the sports mentality led to some of the more daring attempts at being an entrepreneur that I took before I ever came up to Silicon Valley. So I started a couple companies in college, construction company, uh, an entertainment company I contracted with my university. And so I kind of got a confidence level growing up under my dad's leadership as being a bold person and not afraid to try things. And, and that's sort of the spirit that got me up here and got me on the track that I'm on now. So Kelly, you're a kid moving around every 15 to 18 months? Yes, that's right. It's a lot of moving. Yeah. What was that like? I was always the new kid. And, you know, when you're the new kid, uh, depending on what grade level you're at, it can be really tough. Junior high was super hard. And I went to three different high schools, as I pointed out. So I think what was happening was my dad was progressing. He was moving up the political ladder from little towns and little jobs in little towns to ultimately when I was in eighth grade, we moved to the capital of Oregon. My dad was the city manager of Salem and that was sort of his biggest job. So we were kind of living in nicer houses, but, <laughs> but I wouldn't say it was a total game changer. And then one of the ways that I was trying to make friends and become socially connected with people was through sports. And so I was a guy that would come in and and be on the football team or the track team and or the basketball team and make friends that way. Were you thinking about money much when you were growing up? You know, it was funny because I had a few friends in, at a few of the schools I was going to, which I thought these are the rich kids compared to the way we were growing up. I didn't have a great sense for the different tiers of wealth within the communities that I lived in. When I was in Oregon, it was a better socioeconomic situation than the previous cities I was in. So I started to get my awareness of lifestyles that were way above ours when I was in middle school. And then my dad actually lost his job there and, and we left kind of abruptly and we moved back down to one of the little towns we were in. And so it was sort of like an experience where I, we were sort of moving up with my dad's success and then we kind of ended up back down again. And then there was sort of a steady climb back up. So I really didn't get a good, solid awareness, really how people that were in the upper income earning sort of categories lived until I got out and went off to college. And you talked about you're in college, Kelly, and you, you're an entrepreneur starting two very polar opposite businesses, one in construction, one in entertainment. Tell us the story behind that. What, what prompted each and what were you trying to do? You know, I was a real opportunistic kid. I was just kind of out in school and I had a series of jobs that the athletic department at the school I went to provided for me. And in the course of doing those jobs, I was the recycling manager for the college. I went to State College down in, in Fresno and I was the guy that headed up the recycling center. And I realized that there were other opportunities for me to do work on campus for the school. And so I, I built some, some minor construction for the campus and I was hired by the foundation, the sports foundation 
to essentially be the, the school mascot in these unusual events. And the thing was, is I never wanted to actually get in the mascot suit. So I hired a bunch of kids to get in the mascot suit. And so I was the guy they thought was in the, was in the suit, but uh, I, I never actually did it. I just started to figure out I'd leverage my time better if I hired other people to do the gig. And so I did start to figure out that there was a bug I had around, around being a business guy and trying to figure out business problems while I was in school. You're like Tom Sawyer, getting others to paint your fence. That's right. That's right. Very, very simple, very simple beginnings. Was that motivated by money? Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to have my lifestyle improve. I was on athletic scholarship. I didn't have a lot of extra money laying around. And my parents really didn't contribute to my college. So I ended up through a combination of that kind of work and my athletic scholarships was able to get through. And it was sort of like a discovery of myself. I thought, well, I'm going to be a teacher and a coach. And, and about halfway through, I thought, you know, I probably am not going to be a teacher or a coach. I, I'm probably going to go and try and start a company or be a part of somebody else's company. And so I kind of got that bug about my junior year. And so I started looking at where would I go? And, I, and then I was attracted to come up to Silicon Valley. And that was really a daunting decision for me as I got out of school. Tell us more about that. Well, you know, you have those pivotal moments in your life where you're going to do something that you didn't think you were going to do or that presented itself to you that you didn't expect. I guess the calculus for me was I was living in a community where I kind of had developed a lot of contacts and I could work a kind of a small job in a small town, or I could take a chance and move up to the Bay Area and try and get a job. And this was in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was still really expensive here. So the decision to come up here and try and make it where I was going to pay, you know, $1,000 a month for rent or something was really kind of scary. But I took a sales job and I moved to San Jose and I told my family, I think I'm going to relocate to the Bay Area. And that was, that was something that at the time took a little bit of courage but my dad was super encouraging and just said, chase it. Don't not take an opportunity because it scares you. You should actually do it because it scares you. And it was good advice. Mm, that's wonderful. I'm curious, what was it, Kelly? What were you doing? Sales for him? I was a software salesman for a little medical software company in San Jose. And I came up here and got trained and I did that for about a year. And then I got recruited into my first real job as a, one of the members of a, a digital marketing company that was uh, starting. So I went from that sales job to the, to the marketing role and it was sort of a, a being there story, right? I was in the right place at the right time and I had a lot of, a lot of energy and enthusiasm. And it sounds like that, that your life really changed as a result of, of the roles you were taking. I was not taking safe bets. I was essentially trying to move up and and build my career as, as fast as I could. I certainly wasn't looking at the big company track either. I was looking for that entrepreneurial thing that really got me excited and energized about what was next. I've always been someone who was looking ahead to what the next trend is, whether it's in, in tech or or generally um, my life uh, overall. But I, I saw the emergence of the internet start to happen in the early 90s. And I joined a software startup right after. And my the backers were known venture capitalists. And so I was in my late 20s and I got to be a part of a, 
a team of people that started a software business that was pretty successful, not really successful, but I got to see what it was like to raise money and go through the venture process. And, and that really was what took me to the next level, that, that position. And were you just learning along the way, Kelly, or? I had mentors, you know, I, <laughs> I'll tell you, I started writing business plans when I was in my late twenties. And I remember sending one of them into Kozla to, to Vinod Kozla when, when Kozla was founded. And, and I was bothering them. I was calling in saying, you know, can I get a meeting? I want to get my business funded. They finally did get back to me and said that they had looked at my plan and they just didn't think it was ready and that I should do more work on it. And so I ended up going to work for somebody else's startup that raised money. And there, the CEO was a guy who had, was a really skilled writer, journalist, and he taught me how to write. He really was the first person to teach me how to write a business plan and how to write something that could actually get funding. And I didn't mention this, but previously the job, the marketing job I went to work for, my boss was an NYU professor in, in marketing and digital marketing. And so I had phenomenal mentors around, along the way because I didn't study business or marketing uh, or fundraising or anything like that. I had these great mentors. Martin Eisenholtz became the president of the New York Times digital company. He was my boss at the marketing company. And Stu Gaines is a professor at Stanford now. And he was my, the founder that started the software company. And so I had investments from Axel Partners. I got to know Jim Breyer. So I really leveraged my network. I, I had some great bosses. And, and then the next thing you know, I figured out that if I want to really build a great company, I've got to go hire some extremely <laughs> well-trained financial people. And so I started my next company. And that one was the one that uh, went big. And that was in the mid-90s. And, and it was there that I really learned how to build an incredibly powerful team around me. Kelly, we we tell us more about that? What company is this and what was your role? It was called Nova. We filed to go public in the late 90s. You know, it was one of the first big software companies to build transactional tech for the web. So we built all kinds of systems that included the travel portal orbits and we built lending and trading systems for E-Trade. I mean, we were, this was a company that went from basically my second bedroom to our IPO filing in about six years and about a hundred million of revenue. That's back when private companies weren't valued at tens of billions. They were valued at a few hundred million when they went out. And so, yeah, that was my first big one. And that's really the first point in my mid thirties where I, I had my first big kind of liquidity event for my family where I uh, ended up getting bought. And so, you know, my, I wasn't married yet. I had a fiance and we were going to get married. And so that was my first experience in my whole life of, uh, of having developed amassed some wealth and, and wondering what the heck to do with it. That's amazing. And, and so you didn't go public, you got purchased? We got bought on the road show, which was highly unusual. But if you know what happened in April of 2000, when the dot-com crash happened, I was on my road show when it was happening. And there was a big investor that was already on my cap table who said, I want to own this company. And so as the market came down, they walked in and made an offer to buy the company. And so it was sort of one of these moments where I went from going to be a public public company CEO to selling my company all in a matter of about four days. That sounds incredible. Tell us about what was going on with you and your fiance at this time, because that's a pretty big thing to have happen before another pretty big thing that's planned to happen. Yeah, it was incredibly chaotic. She was in a Kleiner-backed startup that had gone public about six months earlier. 
we were going to have our first baby and we were really freaking out. We both had companies that were going public or had just gone public. We were making huge life decisions, one of which was she was going to quit because my company was going public and she was going to be a stay-at-home mom for a while. So we ended up making the decision that she was going to sell all of her stock. Now, interestingly, the company that she was the head of corporate marketing had had a, a, a killer IPO and was worth about $7 billion at the point at which she went and sold her stock, which everyone in the company said, don't do it. And she sold all of her stock. And about five months later, the company's stock went from $50 a share to a nickel. So we looked like the smartest people on the planet, but it was really just timing. And so, yes, it was quite an incredible and, and chaotic moment for the family. We were trying to figure out where we were going to live. And, uh, and, and we were grateful that, that she had gotten out and that, and that my company actually survived what happened in April of 2000. I'm just curious, Kelly, how were you and your fiance having these conversations? Were you, was it easy to talk <laughs> about? I mean, these are huge decisions. We're, we're laughing because we didn't have any financial advisor at all. We were both poor kids. And so we're sitting on more money than we ever thought we'd made in our lives. So the world's kind of coming apart and we're kind of laughing about it saying, <laughs> we're the luckiest people ever. Let's just, let's just, you know, continue doing what we're doing. And, you know, uh, we bought a couple of houses and <laughs> we didn't think too much about it. We were also very early in our careers. I mean, she was younger than me. At, and, and so we, we just thought, okay, we'll just, I'll just start another company and we'll just keep going and not look back. But we really didn't address the money issue at all. In fact, we didn't talk about it that much. We, we essentially just thought about, our jobs, uh, my job, and, and what the next job was going to be, and, and didn't really uh, reflect on it until probably three or four years later. Why do you think that was? I don't think, I mean, I think that there's a story here where if you come into money and you don't have any role model for this, you tend to sort of think of things pretty simplistically. And I think where we were we weren't thinking about what our strategy was. We were thinking about the stuff we were going to buy. And I, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but at that point, the stats haven't changed much. If you start a venture-backed company, you know, one in 10 really make it. And so we thought, okay, we're, we're the one in 10. And let, now let's go out and, and buy a big house and some nice cars and, and then whatever is left over, we'll sort of save it and figure it out everything else later. <laughs> and that was kind of our mentality. And it wasn't until later when we started meeting advisors and talking to people about it, where we really felt kind of immature about it and, and just thought, oh, okay, well, we probably would have done this differently had we thought it through. And it's really a funny story about how people don't think about money. They can be really intellectual and, and analytical about the company they're building and the thing they're going to go do. But when uh, I, I found that when we got actually the return on all of our hard work, we hadn't really thought it through very much. So it was a lesson in life for sure. Mm, that's a good lesson. Kelly, what would you, looking back, what would you and your wife have done differently? Well, interestingly, I began, I was recruited to run another software company that did really well about five years later. And it was that moment as we were coming up to the liquidity event for that second company that we came together and just said, hey, we should be really smart about this. And I sold that company to Verizon in 2005. 
it was a much bigger exit than the first one. And I think what we did then was we said, hey, let's go sit down and start interviewing advisors and let's read more and let's get smart about this because one time is sort of lightning in a bottle. We are getting a chance to hit it like three times with her company and now my second company. So let's be really smart. So we sat down and just started interviewing advisors and figuring out how much do you really need to live a lifestyle that you want. And then you got kids and education, all the stuff that you have to think about. So we, we got smart about it on the, on the second one. And what was it like for the two of you? You say you're both from modest means. What was it like for the two of you to have done so well multiple times within the context of your broader families? Did dynamics change at all? I've got a super tight family. My two brothers and I are, are really close. I think everybody was super thrilled about the good fortune. And I don't think people really understand. It's hard for people who haven't kind of gone through some of this startup stuff all the way through to an exit. I think people have a way of thinking it's really simple. You know, if you watch any of the shows, if you watch Silicon Valley, that's kind of funny. It doesn't really work that way. And it's extremely fraught with risk and all kinds of stuff. So I, I tried to not let people in on how stressful it really was. I just let my family believe that, yeah, we just got super lucky and it's all good. And so we, we, we didn't, re- it didn't really change things in terms of the family dynamic. I think Linda's family was pretty blown away that we were able to, from, she was raised on a farm out in New Mexico. And, and so they were seeing our lifestyle change pretty dramatically and, and it was okay, but we also wanted to start to instill some values in our kids about how to live. And so we really started thinking about that at the time because we had little kids that were starting to grow up in a lifestyle that we had never seen. And I think that's one of the big lessons that I now look at. My kids are now in their 20s. And we really needed to think about how to how to make kids feel grateful and understand how hard it is and, and really es- uh, establish a sense of values for them. And that's really part of why I continued doing this because I felt like if I can go out and keep building companies and creating something for other families and we have fun doing it, let's, let's keep doing it. I do it for a different reason now. And I'm still learning about money. How did you teach your kids these lessons, these values uh, around money? Well, we started talking to them more about about savings and about how to operate on a budget. And I almost made a funny game out of it where, where I would talk to them about how hard it is to put food on the table. I'd take them grocery shopping and I'd say, you see how much this costs? You know, now I, I want you to sort of think about what you'd have to do to, to feed your family and, and really involve them in things that were not the glamorous part but really the more nuts and bolts and realistic parts and showing them how much taxes I was paying. And that just because you get, you think you've got this big pile of money, you, you know, you're going to have to give some to the government. You have to put some in savings and what's left over. Okay. Uh, you can't buy as fancy of a car as you think you can when it's all said and done. And it was those kinds of things. But look, I have to admit at the beginning, thank God they were young, but we, we made some of the dumb mistakes and, and didn't, save well and and bought too fancy of a car and did the things that you shouldn't do. But I tried to reverse that trend. I tried to show them later on and and still do. I love that you said that you're still 
building businesses, trying to help other families. Can you say more about that? What are you up to today? Oh, man, I'm running the most exciting company now, Forge. We just announced that we raised $150 million in our Series B1. The company has gone from really an early startup in 2014, a couple of founders. I've been brought in to be CEO now of four other companies. This one is building essentially a stock market for private companies. And so if you want to buy or sell shares in pre-IPO unicorns, or you want data on pre-IPO unicorns to inform your investment decision, that's what we do here. And the growth of this has been extraordinary. And I do it, and I love this business because it's about giving people access that didn't have access to this private asset class. This is where a lot of wealth is being created in the world right now, is in company formation and in creating innovative you know, companies that change the world. And so we're a capital platform that enables that on one level. But on another level, I love the idea of inclusion and giving access to people to participate in these really exciting companies that weren't able to participate before. And if I can do that and, and let people participate, and my own employees obviously are part of this story, then I'm going to help their families. And, and, and it's really trying to draw a connection between where I came from and what other people can benefit from in terms of their involvement with the asset class. So I, I feel like while this is a super exciting and very valuable company now, I'm most thrilled about being able to create other millionaires, being able to create other returns on investments that, that previously people weren't easily uh, able to access. It is really exciting. When you told your story about your wife and how fortunate you were back in the dot-com bus that she did sell and she sold and timing and luck played into it, think about what Forge is doing to hopefully help people monetize before they don't have to wait. They've, they've worked so long in a company, get some monetization and, and diversification, something that's really, really important. Yeah, you know, I got to tell you guys, I, I get a call like every week from somebody who is an employee at a big unicorn or an emerging one. The one that comes to mind was Chime. I don't know if you guys know the company Chime, but one of their executives sold stock. And she called and said, hey, I just want to tell you how grateful I am. This was a game changer for me and my family. And I was just like, this is so great. You know, this is somebody that worked five or seven years at this place. And yeah, the venture capital people, they're going to they're gonna do great. And the founders are going to do great, but I loved it that, you know, the head of marketing or the head of engineering or somebody who works in HR, they can now go pay for their kids' education because of this. And that, that to me was really, is really special. I love those calls. Since you've had so much success in your life, Kelly, tell us, what's your relationship with money like today? Well, I'm thinking about it differently now. I'm not thinking about so much the thing I can go buy. I'm thinking about the lifestyle that I want to maintain when I stop doing this. And I think about how responsible I want to be for what I leave my kids. And I'm thinking about philanthropy. I'm thinking about being a coach again <laughs> and trying to use it to help other people and not just have my kids 
get all of it. <laughs> if they hear this, they know, they know where I'm coming from. I have already told them they're not inheriting everything. And those are the things I'm thinking about now. And how do those conversations with your children go? I mean, they're adults. It's- yes, they're incredibly good-hearted and balanced people. And so I'm not seeing any disappointment. I think we derive most of our our well-being and our energy and our positive feelings around the love that we feel around us and around our families. And I think as long as that's going well, I think that they'd be satisfied at, at you know, whatever level of fortune they were left. And I think that's, that's hopefully going to last. And I, I, uh, I'm really careful to make sure that we don't get into comparing ourselves to somebody else. I think that's one of the challenges that we have in society now, particularly where there's a lot of privilege. People say, okay, well, this guy's got a private jet. We don't have one, or this guy's got that, and this kid's got this car. And so I, I really try and, and keep the balance, but you know, it's, it's always there. Kelly, when you think about enough, how do you define enough? I guess I think about it as trying to figure out the lifestyle and, and what pays for the kind of lifestyle that you'd feel good about living. And there are certain things that we do. I think this probably applies to most people where no matter what you come from or what you got, you kind of feel like, okay, this is a little bit, this is a little bit extreme. <laughs> like this kind of is definitely not how most people live. And so, you know, you, you, for me, I, 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 I guess a little bit of guilt can sometimes kick in and I want to live, I want to live my life guilt-free. So I, I, I guess I, I think about what the sort of yield looks like if I were to just take everything I have and, and start to yield uh, income for myself in retirement and saying, what level of income do I need to live uh, in a lifestyle where I can travel, I can see my kids and see my family and not have to worry too much about it. I think there's a fundamental question about what version of that someone can afford. My wife and I have this conversation as almost a funny joke. We talk about when our ship comes in, we'll do X, Y, Z. And she jokes and she says, well, our ship has come in like four, four or five <laughs> times. What ship are you referring to? I said, well, there's just different versions of how you live in your retired life. You know, Do we want to live in the south of France or do we want to live you know, in Lake Tahoe or where do we want to live? And so I, I guess I don't have a good answer for that. I'm still trying to figure it out now. But I do, I do want to feel like I'm living responsibly. And that means not being a mad consumer and living in a manner that would be an embarrassment if I look back on it uh, and say from my, my older self, looking back at my younger self, I've done this a few times in the last 10 years. So I, I guess my gauge for what responsible living is still being set, but I, I want to be mindful of the environment. I want to be careful about not living a brash and, uh, and sort of overly ostentatious life. So it sounds like you've gone through quite a personal evolution as it relates to money and especially as your financial circumstances have changed. And it sounds like you've had a very, again, financially successful life living in a very unique corner of the world where there is a lot of wealth around you. I'm curious, Kelly, what have you spent money on that has been most meaningful to you in your life? Probably experiences. And that's changed. Because I'd say that, (laughs) 
not to pick on professional athletes, but if I think about the very first big check you get and you go out and, you know, buy a Ferrari or buy a big house, once you get through that and kind of figure out like, okay, this thing's going to lose value <laughs> and I got to think more, more long-term, I get the most gratification now in terms of experiences. So being with my family in Sicily, where my grandfather's from, looking for his birth records in Palermo is the first thing that comes to my mind. Wow. Because that to me was like, it brought it all together, right? I got to take my family to where, where we began uh, and say, okay, let's walk through this, you know, this square and eat the food and look at the people. And we see ourselves in these people because it's our heritage. And, and that experience, I mean, my kids will never forget that. And I think that's the kind of thing that if you build a uh, success in your life and you can experience that with your family, that to me is what I want to recreate. That's the thing I want to continue to, to pay for. And, and, uh, <laughs> And, and so that, that, that's an easy one. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. What do you most want to do uh, that you haven't done yet? It's funny because I've been thinking about this uh, in terms of w- w- not being bored. If I were to stop being a CEO, I did this for a couple of years where I sat on boards and I kind of was more of the coach and not the player. And I think for me, what I'd like to do is find something that's hard to learn and spend a chunk of my time doing it. I think one of the through lines between my sport that I did and my business is that I took on complex problems that needed me to spend, you know, five to 10 years to learn. And it, whether it's learning to play guitar at, a, at an accomplished level, or something that really requires that I spend years and consistent time every day doing it, uh, it's going to be somewhere in that bucket. It's probably not going to be something I can buy. I can't wait to hear the music. I'm getting you, Kelly. You're an intense guy. We live in a world where things pop so quickly. and People think so short term. I'm going to start it. I'm going to flip it. It's like, these are 10-year business propositions. Now, it sounds like yours haven't always been 10 years. Uh, but I, I, that's a really fabulous answer. They've all been, they've all been like five to five to eight oh, though. Right. And yeah. And, and I, and I'm okay signing up for that duration. I think the world's working on faster rewards and that's part of, I think a societal thing that we got to kind of deal with. I think if you start thinking really short term, you know, it's like anything else. It's, it's not ready. It's not enough. It's not, but, but you know, shit, that's what technology Excuse my language there. That's what technology is really meant to do. It's meant to sort of accelerate, you know, one's ability to do something, whether it's trade a stock or, you know, order a food or do whatever. It's it's really trying to make us expect more faster. And I think that there is some benefit to taking time and learning things and, and developing hard to develop skills. I'm wondering, as you look out into the future of technology, do you think the pace will continue? Will, will it continue to, to accelerate? And do you think it will continue to make people as wealthy as it has in recent decades? 
it's phenomenal what's happening right now. You know, that first company, we raised money in 1990 or 91 and 90. And back then, you know, it was, if you got a company to be worth a couple hundred million dollars, that was a big deal. The numbers have just gotten so big. Today, there are 4,000 companies, almost 4,000 companies that would have been public in 2008 that are now still private. And what people don't understand is that those 4,000 companies are worth an aggregate of $3 trillion. Because of that, you now have entrepreneurs, whether it's an Amazon or a Facebook or Snowflake that we saw go public last year. I mean, you've got people now creating fortunes that are just insane. They're like nothing we've ever seen before. I think one of the things that we're going to see, because there is a reckoning over you know, income inequality and other things going on in society, I think we're going to see more sharing of that with employees. I think we're going to see more sharing of that with investors. Said another way, the concentration of people that can invest in these companies and that can work and get ownership in these companies has expanded. If you take a look at how many employees there were when Airbnb went public, these are huge companies that are going out. They would be essentially a large cap public company valued at 40 billion or above. So I do think we're going to see more people participate, but I'm not sure what's going to happen at the top. People at the top that have ownership in these are going to continue to amass huge fortunes. I like the idea of more wealth being created at, at lower levels. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's funny, we're leading the world in this. If you look at the unicorns that are being minted in Asia and in Europe, the cap tables look really different. There's much, much lower participation by mid-level rank-and-file employees that we see here in the state. So we're still leading in this, in this way. I think it'd be great to see more of it, though. Do you spend a lot of time thinking about income inequality in this country? You know, it's part of the foundational thesis I have for the purpose of FORGE. I, I fundamentally think that if this is a place that's creating innovation and it's creating jobs and high-paying jobs around technology, I'd love to see more of that find its way to parts of the population, parts of diverse people who haven't participated being part of this. And I think it would serve everybody's interest for that to be the case. So I, I do think about it. I, I think about, hey, how, how can we be less selfish? How can we let more people in on this? Because it really is one of the last incredible bastions of capitalism and why not, why not make it accessible to more people? I would love to see more uh, U.S.-based college students from different parts of the country coming into it. You are seeing tech centers rise up in places, you know, like, uh, you know, the Carolinas and in Texas and in other parts of the country. Uh, and so I think that's great. I think, you know, the Silicon Valley has been sort of the center of the universe for a long time in that regard, but I think it's starting to spread out, starting to become more diverse and more distributed. Do you think that what we've gone through with work from home, you know, this need to think more, uh, it's not a centralized workforce. Do you think that will also, would that be a catalyst to this change? It's definitely accelerated the concept of work from home. I mean, not like anyone planned, right? 
But this has shown us, uh, and it's shown me, I mean, Forge performed in the last year beyond my wildest dreams. I mean, I, I, I was really scared coming out of Q1 2020 when we all got sent home, but people rose up and it's a resiliency argument for, for how resilient people can be in times like this. But I, what I saw was we can be productive. In fact, we can be more productive from home. And I think it raises long-term questions around where your workforce needs to be. I think for us, I love the idea of having Forge be located not just in San Francisco, but in San Francisco and in Denver. Pick another geography, Georgia. I love Georgia. I think that there is now an argument to be made that open up two or three satellite offices and let people choose if they want to be a California taxpayer or they want to be a Georgia taxpayer or a Texas taxpayer. I think it will change some policies at the state level because I think you're going to see a more um, geographically dispersed workforce emerge and that's going to affect tax policy potentially. But it kind of takes me back to where I started as a, as a transient kid moving around. Like what, what was the favorite, favorite place I liked to live? I really liked, you know, I really liked living in Oregon. But, but I think, you know, today, if you want to work in tech, you know, you're, you're coming out to San Francisco, you're, being, you're in the Bay Area, but it's changing. I think that opens up a whole new level of personal economics. And if you can choose where you live and it's not tied to your job, that allows you to organize your cost structure very differently. Yes. Yeah. I think that part's starting to hit finally too, where there's a lot being written about if you move from the Bay Area to the to Denver, should you get paid the same, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's that's that that's part of the good news here. By the way, I think people having a dialogue about okay, here's the thing: you can live here, here, or here, but if you live in this lower price uh, cost of living environment, you're not going to get paid the same as as if you're living in you know in San Francisco or New York. And I think that is a real interesting question around trade-offs of lifestyle and allowing people to have some freedoms. I think it's a different argument than just working from home. I think that's a a very different thing. That's right. Kelly, this has been such an amazing conversation. What's one piece of money wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners that hasn't come up yet in the conversation? But it has come up. So maybe I'll just try and restate it a little differently. As you move through your career and you get success and, and, and you have access to, to the kind of opportunities that some of us get, you know, be, be thoughtful about how you think about savings and, and a longer term kind of view. Because, you know, when, at least in the entrepreneurial world, great events like I, the ones I've explained don't come around very often. And I think that people need to be thoughtful about how they plan for the future. And they also have to be thoughtful about letting other people share in what they're doing. And that means if you are fortunate enough to, to come through uh, one of these great companies and you end up making money for you and your family, think about how you can give back and be a part of somebody else's dream. Because I think that's that's kind of an obligation that we have. If we haven't thought about it, uh, we will think about it later on. So I just think that 
being mindful about other people that are that are struggling and chasing and trying to make it happen. I think it brings you back to the sort of co- coach's mentality or mentor mentality. You're not, you're not, you're never too young to be a mentor or a coach to somebody else if you've gone through one of these. And I think that would be what I would encourage people to take away, at least if they were, if they were lucky enough to be in one of these companies. Mm, that's great. We were just talking to someone in the arts and she said in the arts, they really think about uh, pulling people up with them. If they've had, you know, their success, so you're thinking of something similar, the apprenticeship notion and yes. I love thinking about that in business. You know, it's, it could be the same. So Kelly, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? It's probably going to be with my kids. And it's going to be about planning sort of their next phase of, of life and career. You guys have got me thinking. And obviously, during times of reflection, you always think about the thing you, you forgot to tell your kid. And, and I guess coming out of this conversation, it's going to be about living a life that's more mindful about what they're doing with their money and, and not to get as fixated on the thing you're going to buy versus the thing you're going to do. Really powerful. Great conversation. Yeah. And thanks for sharing your thoughts and your story, your history, and you know, congratulations with continued success at Forge. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, guys. It was nice talking to you. Sandy, I am so appreciative of my friend and coach, Carrie Lou Dietrich, introducing us to Kelly Rodriguez. He really told quite an amazing story of entrepreneurship and working hard and successes. I think about his many liquidity events, yet he worked really hard for each one from the very beginning to where he is today. You're right. He didn't He didn't go into a lot of detail, but he did mention how hard it is to take a company public. And by the way, how amazing is it that when he was trying to take his first company public, he sold it on the roadshow? It was unbelievable. And it was when the market was imploding. I know so many people at that time that left with nothing and he connected his business to a buyer. It's amazing. And I guess based on what Kelly told us about his experience growing up and especially in college when he started uh, his his first businesses during his period of daring attempts to become an entrepreneur, it's no surprise. I mean, he's someone, it's clear, who at a very early age had a sense of how it's possible to leverage time by hiring other folks to do something for you. If, if the whole cost of that is less than what you could otherwise be using the time for. And he's also building and utilizing his network to understand what trends were out there, what were the needs, and how could he create businesses to address those needs. Sandy, with your deep experience serving clients, I'd love for you to talk about a comment that Kelly made when he was talking about going through a liquidity event. And his comment was, if you if you come into money and don't have a role model, you could make some mistakes. You could think simplistically. If you don't have a strategy, you might focus more on what you're going to buy versus what you'll do with that wealth. Could you share with us 
your experience in helping clients not just focus on what they're going to buy? It's always fun and exciting to work with clients who are involved in a liquidity event, especially if we are able to start the work before the liquidity event happens, because it just allows a little more time for some dreaming and visioning. I think once the liquidity event happens, it can create some pressure and stress. But regardless of the situation, when we work with new clients, we spend a lot of time with them upfront, understanding what the purpose of their wealth is, whether they've realized their wealth already or they're about to through a liquidity event. We want to understand not only the purpose of the wealth, but what are the client's values and what are they really trying to achieve? What is their vision of the future? When we understand what's most important to them, then we can help them pair their financial resources with those goals and objectives and help them achieve all of those things that they've identified as being important and help them realize their vision. And in my experience, purchasing a home or in some cases, multiple homes is really high up on the list. (laughs) I, I think when people have liquidity, one of the first things to do is to buy this new home because it creates comfort for their family. Beyond that, there really should be a strategy around the purpose of the money, whether it's to help the client and the client's family achieve financial independence for the rest of their life. And we define financial independence as having enough resources to cover all of their needs and wants without them having to rely on more employment income, or whether their objectives are to fund a lot of philanthropic opportunities or to continue to make investments in other parts of the capital markets areas. Whatever the client's goals and objectives are, that's what we want to form strategy around. And I think when there is an alignment between the goals and the values of the client and how they're, they're utilizing their resources, that's when we see the most satisfaction coming into play for them. So you're like a coach and an educator, just like Kelly wants to be. I think you're spot on because it's important that the client's doing the visioning here. We don't tell clients what to do. We just help them achieve what they want to do. And so it is really important. And for some people, you know, they've thought a lot about it and they're crystal clear. And other people have been so focused on what they've been doing, creating companies or whatever their professional activities have been, they've just been focused on that. So they haven't had a chance to really think through what their vision for the future is. And it is our job to help them formulate that vision. Cammie, tell me, what were your thoughts on Kelly's comments about sharing wealth more broadly with others? He just lit up when he was talking about Forge and what Forge is is doing for employees of pre-IPO companies. And I, I've almost felt he was hearkening back to his youth as a you know lower middle class youth and all his, his hustling to create money to get to whatever his next level is going to be. We sit here in Northern California, we see a lot of wealth being created. And it did strike me as something that's so important that it needs to not just stick at the top, it needs to be shared more broadly and through that, you can then impact others with your, whether it's your philanthropy, with whether it's your next business that you start or are part of, 
And I found that really very much aligned with who he is and such an important perspective on on this wealth that's being created and and that it's not just the founders or those first few to be successful it's the whole team and it's everybody on that team what about you sandy kelly mentioned how giving back allows you to become part of someone else's dream and i really liked that statement mm-hmm. i thought there was so much abundance and hope and inspiration there for all of us because it's wonderful when we can help each other out. If we can all do our part to share what we have and help other people achieve their dream while we're achieving ours, I can't help but think how even more amazing our world would be. That's really well said, Sandy. And it is it is beautiful. Uh, just I really appreciated our time with Kelly. And I, I'm sure our listeners will, learning so much from someone who was not only driven to succeed, but also passionate about giving back. He talked about wanting to be a coach or an educator coming out of college. He is that every day, and it was really great to spend time with him. I enjoyed it too. It's just wonderful how many people are sharing their money tales with us, and I'm so appreciative of that, Cami, and especially of Kelly for sharing his time and his tales with us. Kelly, thank you again for your time with us. Hey, listeners of Money Tales, Please share feedback. We really appreciate you spending time with us. And you can reach us at podcasts at Thanks so much for being part of this journey with us. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks. And we'll see you next time on Money Tales.